ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, the director of CT Media, and my co-host Russell Moore is out this week, but Nicole Martin, CT's chief impact officer, is sitting in with me. First, we'll be joined by Malka Simkovich, a professor of Jewish studies at Catholic Theological Union. We're going to talk about Holocaust Remembrance Day, the importance of memory, and retelling that story, and how Christians can love their Jewish neighbors and weep with those who weep. Then, Nicole and I will talk about the shooting of Ralph Jarl and the conversation that it's reawakened about race, violence, and young black men in America. Stay with us. So this past Tuesday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, as it's recognized in the state of Israel and in a number of synagogues and local communities around the world. So for the history, and I hate to even imagine that we need to repeat these things, but I feel that it's important to do it. You know, between 1941 and 1945, about a third of the world's Jewish population was murdered by the Nazis and their collaborators, approximately 6 million people that included two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. So to join us for a conversation about Holocaust Remembrance Day, Nicole and I have asked Dr. Malka Simkovich to join us for the bulletin today. Dr. Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union. She's the author of several books, a contributor to a number of online forums and publications, including the Times of Israel. And she's deeply invested in Jewish-Christian relations, uh, evidenced most clearly by the fact that she's a Jewish scholar at a Catholic seminary. So, Malka Simkovich, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here with both of you. Well, let's start kind of at the very beginning here. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your work in the space of Jewish-Christian relations generally looks like? Sure, absolutely. I work at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, which is a small Catholic graduate school. I have no training in theology. This is the job that I got, and I was very lucky to get the job, but I'm actually not trained in anything interreligious or contemporary. My training is in early Judaism or what we call Second Temple Judaism, but very serendipitously, I got this job, and a few years after I joined CTU to teach Jewish studies, I was invited to direct the Catholic Jewish Studies program, which required me to think not about the second century BCE, but about contemporary relations between Jews and Christians and what kinds of conversations we really need to be having and also what kind of service we need to be doing together, which was something that I was utterly unprepared for 
and I'm still learning on the job. So maybe give us a few examples of, of the kind of work that you're participating in. Is it symposium, bringing people together, forums? So I try to do a combination of academic work and collaboration and fun kinds of collaboration. So it will be anything from an annual conference. We call this the, uh, the Chaim Perlmuter Conference in Jewish-Christian Dialogue, where we bring academics from all over the world together for two days regarding one particular theme. And the academics have training in anything from the ancient world, the Hebrew Bible, all the way to you know contemporary times. And we discussed that theme. So just last month, we had our annual conference, and we talked about technology and ethics. But there have been other events where we have a movie night, we show movies, and we just try to get people in the Chicagoland area together for some pizza to watch a movie that has some kind of resonance in terms of the interreligious relationship. And we have a very casual conversation following the movie. Most people are more interested in the pizza and the conversation. But, you know, you do what you have to do to get friends that don't know that they're (laughs) friends yet into the same room. Well, let's talk a little bit about Holocaust Remembrance. These events obviously cast a massive shadow over all of Western culture, all of global culture. What role does remembrance of the Holocaust and the history and the wounds of the Holocaust play in conversations that you're observing and taking part in between Jews and Christians? Well, Mike, you say that it's obvious that this is something that impacted the whole world, or at least, you know, Europe, North America. But the reality is that many, many people know nothing about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. They know the word. Or maybe they don't even know the word. And this is a very distinctive problem in Catholic spaces because the church is growing in areas where there is no Holocaust education. And we as a school in Chicago are actually a very international school. We have students from all over the world, which is a huge asset to our diversity and to the ways that people learn about each other. And it's a great strength. But the reality is I'm teaching students who don't know about the Holocaust. I'm teaching students who, even if they do know, they have also heard that, well, six million is an exaggeration. Mm. Or, you know, the Holocaust happened and it was very sad. It has nothing to do with me as a Christian. Mm -hmm. Or, yes, it's one of many genocides and I'm uncomfortable talking about this genocide in a way that distinguishes it from others. And so you have these tropes that make me actually feel a little discouraged about our current state of Holocaust education. And these things don't necessarily improve over time. In other words, you might think Holocaust education, with every year that we grow more distant from this event, we can talk about it and we can recognize it for what it was. But no, I think sometimes these things are cyclical. Maybe 20 years ago, we were in a better place with Holocaust education. I think it's very complicated. And it kind of underscores the point that you made earlier about how difficult it is to get people in the room. You know, for me, I grew up in the Baltimore, D.C. area. We did field trips to the Holocaust Museum um, in D.C. But I do remember distinctly going to Yad Vashem and going through that experience and thinking to myself, I have, as an American, significantly underestimated the detail of the Holocaust, mm. the context of what was said, the the indoctrinization, <laughs> this, this kind of like mental practice over years of getting people to follow and believe that an entire group of people can and should be annihilated. And the challenge I have is if we do not 
do a careful autopsy of that moment, we will either intentionally or unintentionally create the exact same context today. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you. If we can't get people in the room to have dialogue, then we can't have a space to remember. And if we can't remember, then we will definitely be prone to repeat, which is a bit scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's true. And I think part of the reason why the Holocaust happened is because it didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't begin in 1933. Mm-hmm. Um, there were collaborators or witnesses to this catastrophe that came from a long line of inculcation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is not exclusive to Christianity, but certainly Christianity, I think, does play a role in the theology that enabled it to happen. So I think you're absolutely right. Very detailed. I mean, this, you know, could not have happened without silence, without, Mm -hmm. you know, tolerance of what they knew was going on. Yeah. And and I have to agree, Nicole, I think the experience of Yad Vashem for me was also just a categorically different experience than Mm -hmm. the Holocaust Museum in DC. Because I think part of what, so Yad Vashem for listeners is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And part of what's brilliant about the design of that museum is that you begin in the 1920s and it begins with just the introduction of the first relatively subtle anti-Semitic propaganda that began to spread throughout Europe. And you kind of walk through the boiling of the frog, right? As the mm-hmm. temperature heats up on the rhetoric and as you start to read about and discover that, you know, how Jews were made stateless and became refugees and were forced into ghettos and long before the mass killings began. And so it really is this story of this incremental expression of evil that people grew intolerance for and bought into an ideology, which was such a big part of the story, because such a big part of the whole story of Nazi Germany was there's this ideal, there's this utopia on the other side of conquering Europe and getting rid of the real problem here in Europe, the real poison in Europe, which is which which is the Jews and and the propaganda presented Jews as bugs and rodents and I mean just all this horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. The heart of it was to try to convince people that on the other side of this violence we're going to have something better. And it relied on all this dehumanizing rhetoric. Yeah. I think one of the things that's so concerning to me about our politics today is that we go right back to the well on this dehumanizing stuff, whether yeah. whether we're talking about anti-Semitic conflict or whether we're talking about political conflict in general. You know, as people who believe in God as a creator and humans made in his image, the tolerance for that language in any sphere, in any context, should be zero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the other things that is bothersome is you cannot really hold a claim to your faith as a Christian without also recognizing the many countless ways over every generation that Christianity has been used to demonize others. I mean, when you think about, for me, it really stood out in the 2018 synagogue shooting. The shooter had on his social media page scriptures because he just felt a zeal for the Lord. How is it possible to lay claim to a faith where you are part of the engrafted branch, and yet you feel a, quote, divine calling to annihilate an entire group of people. And Malka, you're in a space where you are embodying 
the negotiation of these relationships between Jews and Christians. So how do you not get angry? Like, how do you, how do you navigate this space knowing that the bulk of these crimes against Jewish communities have been committed by Christians who believed that they had, I dare say, a calling, an impulse from God? It's a great question. I mean, I think that the relationship between Jews and Christians today is miraculous. And I come into work really trying to appreciate and have at the foreground of my mind what took place in 1965. I'm in a Catholic space. And so when I think about the relationship with particularly the Catholic Church, I can't think about that relationship without acknowledging that the Catholic Church underwent what might be the biggest religious transformation that any religious group has ever undergone in the modern age. And Mm. so the retraction of deicide, of God murder towards the Jewish people, I think has to be recognized. Now, it has not trickled down. I mean, that's the reality. And the question of what's going on in evangelical spaces and Protestant spaces is a totally different conversation. But the point is that there are billions of Christians. And so even talking about the Jewish-Christian relationship is sort of problematic Mm. uh, because there are so many conversations happening and generalizing is not helpful. And I would say that the students who take my courses are making a choice. Fortunately or unfortunately, most of my courses are not required, mostly unfortunately. But the advantage of having not required courses is that I'm talking to a room of people who want to be there. And that sort of buy-in, that engagement makes my life much easier because Mm -hmm. these are students who are open and investing in changing their own mind. And I always have one student, two students a year who say something that just is so alarming that I think, have I made any difference here? But really, it's a tiny minority. But that's what you walk away remembering at the end of the semester. There was one student who said, well, I don't think the Holocaust happened. Or there's one student who said, I saw a YouTube video that said that Jews don't believe in COVID, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So, you know, that is what you walk away with. You could have 100 great interactions, but if one person says to you, I've even been asked if I have horns. I've been asked to show my head, which is unusual in the Catholic spaces. Yeah, wow. usually it's not. And so, but but again, you have students from all over the world who've never met a Jew. I'm and sorry, just to be clear, you've been directly asked if you have horns by students. To lower, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. my goodness. <laughs> that student was from a different culture. And sure. My, my point is, is that these students are very representative of, I think, 99.9% of Christians in the world, Catholic or Protestant, who are thinking all, all, maybe not all the time, but who are thinking about the hermeneutical Jew. So they think Mm -hmm. about Jews all the time, Mm -hmm. and they've never Mm -hmm. met a Jew. Mm. And, you know, the fact that there are people today who have never met a Jew does grieve my heart when you think about the fact that the Jewish community does seem to be smaller and smaller with every generation. I think the most recent, well, now in, in our conversations, in our Jewish evangelical conversations, that comes up every year, that there's a sense of of a dwindling community. So how do you pass on faith when the next generation, across all faiths, by the way, is choosing to walk away from that faith, the faith of their mothers and fathers, and either choosing to be agnostic or to be atheist or to adopt another faith? Mm-hmm. So the fact that today there are still people who've never met a Jew, it grieves my heart to to imagine, is it possible that 10 years from now or two generations from now, there may be even greater populations who've never met a Jewish person? 
how is that being wrestled with? So I think that the numbers are, I think that there are maybe a little over 14 million Jews. And I think that that number is possibly growing, but the disaffiliation that you're talking about Mm -hmm. is growing faster. So I think that you're right. I don't know the numbers. I haven't looked at the polls, but I think the demographic changes are a little alarming and those need to be addressed. And the demographic changes is that 80 years ago or whenever, you know, prior to the decimation of European Jewry, there were Jews throughout Europe and Mm -hmm. there were some Jews in North America. There were very few Jews in the global South, but there were Jews in South Africa, Australia. But again, I'm not an expert on the demographics, but what's happened now is that you have increasingly dense concentrations of Jewish life. And so you have over, you have 7 million Jews in Israel, maybe a little less because you have 2 million Muslim and Christian Arabs, and then maybe 5 to 6 million Jews. And then you have something similar in terms of the concentration of Jews in North America and Canada and the United States. And so what happens when those populations are growing more dense and sort of more, I don't want to say closing in on itself, because that's not a nice phrase, but the population is dense and limited to certain places. And so then you're in a situation where you have the vast majority of the world doesn't really have, you know, vibrant Jewish presence. Mm-hmm. And again, there are Jews in South America. There, there are Jews all over the world, but these are small communities. You can go to mm-hmm. Berlin now and find synagogues, but it's a, they're small communities. Let me throw out some data that I thought was interesting and important for this conversation. In February of this year, the FBI released its report on hate crimes from 2021, and it reports that the single most targeted religious minority in America are Jews. The ADL released a report last month on anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. They're up. Uh, There were 3,600 anti-Semitic incidents in 2022. That's up from the previous year. It's the highest of all time. It's consistently three out of the five years have broken a previous record of the numbers of anti-Semitic incidents in a given year. They also found that 83% of Americans believe one or more anti-Semitic tropes. Wow. So this really is an environment, and I feel like this is a factor of sort of racism in American life that doesn't get a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. And part of that, like you say, may be simply reflective of the fact that Jewish life is generally smaller communities. I mean, I think it makes up 2% of the U.S. population is Jewish. When you're talking with Christians who say, hey, how can we serve our Jewish neighbors? How can we love our neighbors? How can we care? How can we stand with them against violence, against anti-Semitism? What comes to mind to you? It's a great question. It's an important question. I What I see over and over is well-meaning acts of allegorization. What can I learn mm. from the Holocaust? What can I learn from the Jews? The Jews are so good at business. They're so good at, you know, insert here. They're so good at Hollywood. I don't know what. But that kind of well-intentioned generalizing, I see it all the time in the framework of Holocaust discussion and just discussing anti-Semitism. There's almost this urge to say, we have to learn from the lessons of the past to be nice to, and again, fill in whatever minority here. I was on a panel a few years ago and someone, again, this was a Catholic Jewish event and someone raised her hand and said, what can I learn from the Holocaust? And I said, I think you want me to say that we have to attend to all kinds of social and religious hatred. We have to condemn all manners of genocide. And of course that's true. But from a Jewish perspective, 
I would say nothing. You can learn nothing from the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Nothing. This is not your lesson. I am not a player on your stage. Yeah. There's nothing I want you to learn from the Holocaust besides the fact that humanity did an evil thing. This is not your lesson. I am not a token. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to say I can learn from the Jews X, whether it's a compliment, right? I can learn from the Jews how to be good at blank, or I can learn from the Holocaust to not be mean to fine. But the theology that's produced by Jews, first of all, it's complicated, but the general assessment is who can understand the ways of God? So instead of asking, why did God do this horrible thing? Why did humanity do this horrible thing? How do we allow that? But at the end of the day, I'm uncomfortable with a lot of the allegorizing, a lot of the tokenizing. You want to prevent a Holocaust? Meet a Jew, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Make those relationships. Get down to the personal, real level interact with real people stop talking about the hermeneutical jew the symbol in your mind meet the real people and form real personal friendships Hmm. that's the solution right the solution is not to have these lofty conversations about how what lessons we can learn from the jews i'm really uncomfortable with that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i am so grateful that you shared that you know another thing that makes me uncomfortable especially when you're talking to people in my community there's a sense of kind of a folding in of all sorts of oppression which i think is another issue because for people who are saying well what about the holocaust and what about slavery and what about child labor laws and what about sex trafficking oh all of that is just so much let's just lump it all together no 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 every individual moment of oppression and genocide has to be taken for its own. Yes. I mean, when, when I look back at the pictures of um, the civil rights movements and those who marched, you see rabbis marching alongside Dr. King. And they're not saying in quiet rooms, hey, man, I'm glad we could do this, but now can you talk about the Holocaust? They were in solidarity because they understood pain and their understanding of pain led them to be in solidarity with another. It would be wonderful if we can get to a place where we will allow the Holocaust to be its own moment, where we will allow slavery to be its own moment and deal with each of them as we can, as we can engage. But it is difficult when you add the tropes with a generalization of all oppression. Well, you Mm -hmm. know, the Israelites were slaves in the Bible and black people were slaves. And so we'll just, you know, lump them all together. No, no, no. These are very unique experiences. The only similarity might even be just the context of hate and the context of how we see what it means to be made in the image of God. But they are very unique experiences. Yeah, I've thought about this in terms of the idea of like a scarcity mindset and almost this idea that like we gravitate a little bit towards having a scarcity mindset about what we define as evil, what we define mm-hmm. as worthy of grief, worthy of anger, worthy of our emotion. And so because of that, it's like, it's like there's people talk about victim culture in the, the U.S. today. And part of what that is referring to is this sense that people feel like they need to compete on mm-hmm. the national stage for attention, for their grievance or their sorrow or their grief or whatever it may be, whether it's legitimate or not legitimate. And I think part of what you're describing, Nicole, I think that's very real. I think you see this with Christians as well who are mm-hmm. saying, well, we're persecuted. Look what happens to us here and there mm-hmm. and the other. And it's like, you know what's not scarce in this world is evil. Mm. Evil is not a scarce commodity. It's Mm going to keep coming, and it's going to come from all kinds of places. And when we see it, our impulse should not be to go 
yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, right? Exactly. I know um, exactly how you feel. Right. You don't know. Like, we don't know how you feel, mm-hmm. Malka. I don't know mm-hmm. how you feel, Nicole, in, mm-hmm. in the various ways that you and your community have suffered and, and need to grieve. And so it seems to me faithful presence for Christians in an environment like this is to be Job's friends before they open their mouth, yes. is to be Jesus who shows up at a tomb and weeps. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I, I think I, I loved the way you phrased that, Malka, and I just am grateful for your making time and, and joining us for this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, I'm really grateful for your making the time, and I'm so glad to see my friend Nicole, who is yes. someone I admire so, so much. Thanks, Malka. We appreciate you. And we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So this past week in Kansas City, a 16-year-old named Ralph Yarl went to the front door of a home, rang the doorbell. He was there expecting to pick up his younger brothers. He was met at the front door by an 84-year-old man named Andrew Lester. And without exchanging any words with him, this man shot him twice through the glass door. Ralph Yarl survived and fled. However, he's now experiencing traumatic brain injury and will have lifelong repercussions from this shooting. Lester, the shooter, is white. Ralph is black. And here we are again with the subject of race, guns, violence, racial profiling, back in the news once again. 
once again. And you know, the trauma of these types of news moments is not ever just the moment. It's what these moments bring up. So you cannot see the shooting of a young black man without remembering Trayvon Martin, without remembering Mike Brown. All of these moments pile up. So it's never just grief in the moment. It's the piling on of grief. And it's the repeated phrases that come out every single time. I was scared. It makes me pause and wonder, what in our context creates such an environment of fear that the first reaction is to draw a gun as opposed to calling 911 or Mm -hmm. asking a question, who is it? What do you want? What kind of environment have we created that the reaction is pull a gun on a black boy, boy, as opposed to engaging in other ways? I mean, this is the tragedy of the moment. Yeah, I I couldn't help as well but think about Trayvon Martin. And I really, Mm -hmm. one of the things I have thought a lot about in the last 10 years is There's been a lot of talk, including a lot of talk here on the bulletin, about the fraying of bonds inside evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And for me, I can't help but come back to 2012 and to that killing and see it as a moment where my friends inside the evangelical world suddenly didn't understand one another anymore. Mm. Because because it was a really strange time. I mean, I remember being at a, a Gospel Coalition event I want to say it was probably 2010. Mm-hmm. And it was this moment where you had like, I think that at the time it was referred to as like the reformed hip hop yeah. thing. So Lecrae was part of that. People like Shy Lin, Trip Lee, some of these folks were friends of mine. And here they are, they're at the Gospel Coalition events. I was on a panel with Lecrae and I, I believe Makoto Fujimura was on this panel and then a mm-hmm. jazz musician from New York City. It's a panel on, on the arts and, and the church. And you fast forward a few years. And between the four or five of us on that panel, it's hard to imagine all of us in that circumstance at that event again. It would be even harder to imagine us at other places where that event might have been held, certain seminaries that were affiliated, you know, the Reformed world. Now, that splintering is like, it's not just splintering, it's over. Those families don't talk to each other. And I felt like the killing of Trayvon Martin in particular was this moment where my black friends looked at this and go, I know exactly what this is about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my white friends were saying, a lot of them were saying, well, who are we to judge? You know, Mm. and and that's the language you just used, you know, Mm -hmm. where he was scared. He didn't Mm -hmm. know what this was. Trayvon Mm -hmm. Martin's, you know, a teenager. He's a strong kid. You know, he managed to get the gun out of George Zimmerman's hand. Like, and I'm like, and what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Therefore, Mm -hmm. what? He deserved to get shot. It was okay that he got shot. The way race plays into the conversation doesn't matter. Is that the – that's the question I always want to ask. And what? Yeah, that's right. And it's difficult because those moments do help us to see the many ways that we live in totally different realities. Now, we Mm -hmm. can work those differences to our advantages. We can say, wow, look at how you navigate authority figures and and look at how I do that. I wonder what causes you to do that. I remember after Trayvon Martin, we had a lot of conversations with mothers. I was on staff at a predominantly Black church at that time. And the greatest fear, the greatest trauma was for mothers who were raising Black boys. And they felt like, I have to teach my 12-year-old how to handle himself in front of police. I have to teach him how to handle himself in front of authorities. And now I have to teach him how to handle himself in front of every white man who may see my young boy who may be going through a growth spurt and see him as a killer, as a threat. Mm 
So it's like, mm-hmm. it was in that moment that I realized as a black woman, I've got to have conversations with my kids that my white friends don't have to have. And we've always mm-hmm. kind of known that, but these moments bring the differences to the fore. It was mm-hmm. the same after George Floyd. My husband, the, the girls were, we were trying not to get them to watch the news, but it was 2020. I mean, everybody's watching the news. So, you know, the girls, we had the news on, the girls saw it and they saw George Floyd's daughter who was five at the time. My daughters were six and eight. So my husband gets his hoodie, black hoodie, puts it on. He's about to take the trash out. The girls start crying. No, daddy, don't go outside. We don't want Mm. you to go outside. And it Mm. hit me again. These moments create differences in families. They bring to the surface the differences in how we have to talk to our kids. The way I talk to my girls about how we walk through a store is totally different than the way my white friends talk about how their daughters walk through the store. My daughter picking Mm. up an item in a grocery store is a very dangerous thing. Do not Mm touch anything we're not going to buy because I have had people come over to me. I've had store managers linger near when my daughters pick up something that we don't intend to buy. And I've watched Mm. my white friends when we all go shopping together, never get approached when their daughters open items, which to my horror, I'm like, oh my God, if my daughters ever did that, man, we'd be prone to be arrested. But Mm. these are the times where differences are exacerbated. So what do we do? How do we manage? We have totally different narratives that are going on in the same Christian community that feels like two different families. Another moment from the Trayvon Martin that year that that has always stuck to, stuck out with me, which which I think applies to this, is there was a moment where President Obama was talking about it, and mm-hmm. he said he looks very much like someone who could be my son. And the reaction to that, the vitriolic reaction to that by people on the right. It it fell very Mm. much along partisan lines, that this was somehow inappropriate for him to have said, and that it violated some, I I don't know, some some sort of unwritten rule and and code. And you know what? I feel like we've seen similar things, like you said, with Ferguson, any Mm -hmm. discussion about race, people, there's a reactivity that's that's so quick, so anxious. It's so anxiety-filled. You know, there's a phrase that people may be familiar with. It's it's a controversial phrase, but it's this idea of white fragility, Mm -hmm. that white people understand both intuitively and culturally that racism is a bad thing. And as a result, when conversations about race happen, there's an instinct to go, it's not me. How do I communicate? How do I telegraph that it's not me? Yeah. And that often translates into an anger that almost comes across as, well, how dare you bring this up? How dare you make mm. this assumption? That's not who I am. That's not who we are. And it really is counterproductive to meeting yeah. a moment like the one we're in and listening and weeping with those who weep. That's right. And there is something powerful that happens when people who may not have had that experience or had that narrative in their lives can be in solidarity with others. I was talking to a gentleman, Ray Jarrett. He leads Unite KC. I spoke with him this morning, and he was talking about the way that the church in Kansas City is coming together around this moment. And, you know, in each of these situations, it's often white churches who reach out to black pastors or leaders and say, how can we help? And I think, you know, I know that there are people who would demonize that and say, well, no, it's not. You have to lead. You have to, you know, you have to invite me into what you're doing. But there is something to be said about a people who may not be as close to the moment saying, what can I do to be present with you? And when you mm-hmm. talk to Ray and when you talk to Eric Rochester at the Sending Project in Kansas City, what they say is the church is longing to be together 
in their response. And I think that is encouraging. This isn't just a white church coming to stand alongside a black church. They want to be together in solving for these issues. And what they're trying to get to is the heart of the issue. How do you deal with this constant rhetoric of fear that pervades every political conversation that kind of invades every conversation we have about division? It's always fear. So the church has to wrestle with how have we implicitly or unintentionally created an environment of fear, even within the church? Well, I, I think it points us to the gospel, you know, yeah. in that the gospel tells you from, number one, it tells you from the very beginning, like, yes, you're a wretch. You're way, yes. you know, Keller's thing. You're way worse off than you ever thought you were, but you're also way better off than you ever dreamed you could be because grace mm-hmm. is sufficient. Yeah. And so I feel like it's an anti-gospel thing for Christians, for white Christians in particular, to feel so reactive around conversations about race that they can't make room for, maybe I'm not seeing something, maybe Mm -hmm. I'm contributing in ways that I don't know and don't understand. Like maybe there is harm at work, maybe there are problems in my community that I have blind spots to. Like the gospel confronts us with, that is probably true. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. that is probably true that there is sin and evil at work in any aspect of your life that you examine faithfully and truthfully. And again, we come back to this place where issues around race in America are so contentious that it has become a place, again, for many of my white brothers and sisters in the church, it's become this place where the walls are up and we don't even want to look at it. We don't even want to have the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I think it it just grieves me that this is the case because it doesn't have to be that way. There are a couple of kind of ways that we already know that help us to be present with each other. And perhaps, maybe, this is a moment of reckoning within the American church to say, don't just deal with racial issues or deal with political issues, but deal with your brokenness. This might be the time Mm -hmm. to deal with brokenness. I had the honor of hearing Philip Yancey speak earlier this week. Man, that guy's brilliant. But when you (laughs) listen to him speak... He just he acts like he didn't write 24 books. Like he like he just he has owned his brokenness. He shared with a group of people about his physical troubles that he was going through. And I remember one of the books that really impacted me was a book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It was Philip Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand. And Paul Brand does a lot of work with leprosy around the world, but specifically in India. And he talks about when one part of the body is wounded, but the other part of the body doesn't have a nervous system connection, that's the pain of leprosy. It's walking mm. on a broken ankle and the leg doesn't know that the ankle is broken. That's the pain. Mm. And it was like this mm. major revelation. Our issue with conversations around race is numbness. We have become numb to our own brokenness and it makes us numb to the brokenness. We're walking on the broken ankle and we just keep you know, damaging it over and over. And sooner mm. or later that's going to trickle up to affect the rest of the body. So it just, you know, I get frustrated and I get passionate about this because I'm like, it doesn't have to be this way. (laughs) Just attend to your brokenness and we can go Mm -hmm. someplace together. But if we lean on this idea that everyone's perfect and we've got it all together, then then no, you'll never hear my story. I think that gets at one other thing that I think is so important in this, which is we have to get past abstractions. We, We like to think about people as collectives. So mm-hmm. there's there's 
black people, there's white people. There's, you know, you get into all the sort of cultural tribalism, the yep. racial tribalism, the cities versus rural communities versus okay. suburbs. And you think in all of these very, very abstract terms, rather than let's set the abstractions aside for a second and let's think yep. about a 16 year old boy knocking on someone's door late at night and getting shot. Yep. If we can start with the tragedy of the particular, then we can start to go backwards and really ask, okay, why did that happen? You know? Yeah. And I think there are other elements to all of this. Living in a society that's as full of guns as, as we are, living in a society that's as fearful as we are. I mean, there was another shooting the weekend before. Yes. Um, a 20-year-old woman, she and some friends pull into a driveway, the wrong house, very similar situation. And she was shot and killed mm-hmm. by somebody who saw the car pull in the driveway, got scared, pulled a gun, and fired it off. So there are many contributing factors yes. to the way this kind of violence takes place. Yep. But it's not this or that. These causes are – there's not one cause, but there's also not if this is true, that can't be true, right? Like, yeah. like it can all be true at once that right. the shooting of Ralph Yarl reflects something that's deeply broken about our culture related to fear and guns. And it also seems very true that this is reflective of something in our culture where young black men are treated in a very reactionary way as a threat, once again, leading to somebody getting shot. To your point about how important it is to see each tragedy as a particular thing, I actually heard someone say, well, Lester should have been scared. He had a right to because look at what happened in Alabama. So you have Mm -hmm. on the same news channels a picture of a young boy in band who was shot and was innocent. And you've got on the same stream pictures of young black men who shot up at 16-year-olds party. So, you know, for, for them, this lumping together allows for this kind of proliferation of a narrative. All young black teens are violent all of them. And therefore, that justifies what I'm saying, because in the news, you keep seeing their faces over and over. And it is hard to distinguish the face of an innocent young Black boy from the face of those who walk into 16-year-old house parties with guns. But we don't do that with other communities. We're not mm-hmm. lumping together. Jeffrey Tom. no one ever said, oh my gosh, that guy over there looks like Jeffrey Dahmer. Let me be afraid. We say, oh, mm-hmm. you know, that was a unique situation. That's a particular mm-hmm. person. I don't know how we unpack that. I don't know how we train a theology around particularity. I mean, it's there in scripture, but how do we do that? Yeah, no, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's, I don't have an immediate solution to that. But I do think in part it comes back to get your head out of the clouds of mm-hmm. the television, get your head out of the clouds of social media where all of this stuff does live. It's all mediated through TV, through your phone, through these different places. And live in the brick and mortar, flesh and blood of your community where real relationships transform the way we see one another. And I know for me, living in a depressed neighborhood, for a long time, my wife and I lived in this neighborhood in Louisville called Germantown, which was predominantly white, but literally a block away and a train track away was Smoketown, which was predominantly black. And it was the years living in that community that just completely transformed the way I understood the dynamics of race in our culture. Because I just saw the way, just a block away, the experience of those communities was worlds apart. And so to me, I think that like if you want to get away from the abstract, you get to the particular. And the particular is people. The particular is. is getting to know to know people. And 
that doesn't mean you have to be on the scene every time something horrific and tragic happens. But you know what? Your neighbor down the street is probably experiencing it differently than you are. And you can show up and you can, if you have a friendship, if you have a relationship, these things are just going to come up. You don't, it's not something you even have to force. It's what it means to share life with people who aren't exactly like you. That's right. I mean, that was the central theme of the Divided by Faith book Michael Emerson wrote several years ago. You know, the idea that as Black communities engage in scripture, they become more vigilant and serious about justice. And the more white evangelical communities engaged in scripture, they became farther removed. So as much as we want to say, just turn to the Bible, that is actually not the answer. The answer is turn to the Bible and turn to the neighbor. And the one thing that Michael Emerson points out is the only way that changes the heart and mind of a person who has a bias is a relationship. That's the only thing that changes it. And not a superficial, we wash feet together on Maundy Thursday, though that might be well and good. He's talking about inviting someone over for dinner. He's talking about encouraging a family by being at another child's recital. This is doing deep life together, which feels impossible in our society that is so turned in on ourselves. We do not make time for other people, period, let alone Mm -hmm. making time for people who don't look like us, inviting Mm -hmm. people who don't look like us on vacation or into our homes. It feels like a very scary thing. So I think now Mm -hmm. is the time for churches to begin thinking about what are the small steps that you can take to build meaningful relationships because of the word and not just, Mm -hmm. oh, how do we do another Bible study to get over this fear? Well, and and to take that a step further, I think part of what you're pointing at is that churches have a role to play, but it can't stop with the churches programming something in order for this to work. That's right. Because like, great, the Monday, Thursday, washing each other's feet thing, that's great. Mm -hmm. What happens next? What happens beyond that? Because the danger is, I think for a lot of Christians, they feel like, well, I washed somebody's feet. I served at a shelter. I did this. I did that. I'm able to check these things off my list and then go back to my sort of comfortable suburban bubble. Whereas I think love of neighbor means relationships with neighbor. And that's a much more direct and challenging thing. And it pulls you out of the abstract. And it's messy because in relationships, mm-hmm. as much as you may try you know, to have very wonderful aims, sometimes you see the messy. I remember I was on a panel discussion with this guy. It was several years ago. It was a white gentleman and he was saying, I've given up. He's like, I've tried doing life with black communities. I've invited them to my house and they won't come. I've, you know, I've showed up at their things, but they never show up for mine. And then the moment I say something wrong, then they just, you know, they cuss me out. And, and so I'm done. I'm done. And I was saying to him, you know, relationships are messy. So are you opting out because it's getting hard? Are you opting out because you're not seeing the fruit of your labors? Because at the end of the day, this is not about an immediate fruit. This is not you invited me over for dinner and, you know, I loved your soup and salad, which, by the way, we don't have in my house. We have food. (laughs) But, I mean, there's a sense of, like, are you just going to stop there because you're looking for the short-sighted pat on the back? Or are you in it for the long haul? That's the skill set. That's the resilience that needs to be built up in the church. Make relationships and be in it for the long haul. Be in it for the ups and the downs and the messy parts and the parts when they don't come over for dinner or the parts where you go to their house and what you eat is offensive. Stick in it. Stick stick through it. And then we have to create a vision that makes it worthwhile. You're going to stick it out because what happens on the other side is a better you and a better me if we can get there. One last question before we wrap up. You mentioned speaking with a pastor in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what did he share with you in terms of what the church is actually doing on the ground right now? 
Yes. So he said, you know, there are pretty much three things that they're doing. The first is obviously praying together. He said they brought people together for a time of prayer. The second thing that they're doing is creating conversations. And he said very wisely that sometimes situations like these, when they happen in a city, create pockets of pent up anger and a space needed for lament. So he said, we're creating dialogue, spaces where people can talk together and churches are leading in that effort. And then from Eric Rochester at The Sending Project, they've had since prior to 2020, I want to say it started around 2017, 2016, they started something called Heal KC, where they're doing race healing groups, where they're talking about generational trauma as a result of race. And they bring churches together from various ethnicities where they can share the stories of oppression, where they have active listening audiences. That's been going on for a while. So they're pushing that to say, now let's use this moment to bring forth the greater healing that needs to take place from generational trauma. So I was mm. I was really proud to see how the church is showing up. Often we don't talk about how the church shows up in these moments. We only talk about the tragedy. But, you know, the the joy of those moments are these are groups who have been in KC for a while. They're going to continue this work after this moment. And all they want to do is make space for, you know, people to connect and to encounter God. Nicole, I think that's a great place for us to land. Thanks for joining me here. And thanks to all of you for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.